Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Podcast, the daily podcast where we break down Mad Max one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 75, which begins with Max running down the middle of the road, and it ends with two doctors talking about their patient. So this is not the ideal way to end a week with just the mm, hard-to-watch aftermath of Jesse getting run over by the toe cutter, because for the first half of this minute we're watching max charging down the middle of this road far too late to help his wife and child and who boy when you've spent this much time with max with jesse with their family unit to see it come to this it's really rough it is uh we i'm actually having a hard time like finding the words i think they're george miller and the team were very effective in how they presented this to us. Mm-hmm. It's rather minimalistic. We spend a good deal of time, like you said, just watching Max run down the road. We already know what happened to Jesse. Mm-hmm. And he, as he's getting closer, he's learning. We also see in his face how tired he is. Right. And how winded he is. Because he's been sprinting he's been ever since running. the woods. Yes. So he... He pushes through that to get to Jesse. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment when he slows down just a little bit. And I think that it's the moment when he's actually close enough to Jesse to physically see her and physically see how much damage has been done. Mm-hmm. So he, he slows down just a little bit and he cries out. Like it's it's confirmed to him what has happened. And then he speeds back up and makes it to the pair. Yeah, the you ground. can kind of see on Mel Gibson's face where he kind of digs down, finds extra energy. Yes. And just continues running at full clip. Ugh, and it's it's rough. And we mentioned yesterday the idea that we're not necessarily shown the violence. We're shown the aftermath of the violence. Yes. And we're relying very heavily on Mel Gibson's performance to convey how bad it is. Yes. And... Our perspective that we're given of Jesse and Sprague is they are quite far off in the distance. Mm-hmm. We can clearly recognize the form that is Jesse. Like, we can recognize her clothes that she was wearing, the white, like, beach cover up. We can clearly recognize that. We cannot recognize anything that might be Sprague, which I appreciate them not showing us anything like that. But we're so far away that you can't really see anything. And we stay that far back. We've been running, the camera has been running with Mel Gibson for a little while. Mm-hmm. And then the camera stops. And it's it's a beautiful shot that they've set up. It's very symmetrical with the road down the center. We've got the horizon and Mel Gibson running straight down the center to Jesse and Sprague. And by the time that happens and he reaches them, they're quite far away from us. We are quite removed. Because this is a moment that we have no right to be in. This is a moment between Max and Jesse and Sprague. And even though this is being performed for our benefit, we still have no right to be there. Mm. This This is a private moment that we are not included in. 
We watch it from afar like like May and Benno are watching it from afar. Mm-hmm. They could have also gone to Max and Jesse and joined them in their heartbreak, but they didn't. Yeah. Mm. And he... Something else I found interesting that it, it's hard to tell how far... Eh, Ahead of time, he dropped his gun, but let's call it six feet, ten feet. Before he reaches Jesse, he drops his gun. And I personally found a lot of meaning in that. When there's a dire situation, when there's a crisis situation, you know, while it's active, it's it's a rescue operation. You're going in there trying to save people's lives. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a moment when there's a transition from rescue to recovery. When you have acknowledged that you can no longer save a life. You now it's time to take care of the fatalities. It's interesting that you should put it that way because I kind of interpreted him dropping the gun before he reaches the bodies as kind of him losing strength. You know, I a like lot of that people thought. see firearms as an extension of masculinity, an extension of power. And the fact that he's holding this while he runs, that's energy that he's expending to hold on to it because it is, you know, a weighted prop. Yes. And so when he gets that close, he drops that prop just because the energy is just leaving he, his body and all he has left to do is the ability to get close enough and then he drops and to his drops. knees and he just cries out in anguish. Yes. With no pretense of how he appears or what tools he's holding on to. This moment here is just him crying out to the universe, you know, why? Yes. I think it's a very powerful moment. Yeah. Incredibly well shot. Yes. Oh my goodness. I, for me, this moment was far more powerful than the shot of the shoe and the ball. Hmm. I hear what you're saying. Which was meant to be powerful, but it didn't speak to me very strongly. I feel like the shot from yesterday where we see the shoe and the ball was our opportunity to be shocked and horrified by what happened. Now, in minute 75, this is Max's time to be shocked and horrified. Yes, and we are, we're watching. Yeah, and I like what you said about this is a private moment for them because his shock and horror is completely different from the shock and horror that we experience as an audience. Yes. These are two very distinct things that George Miller was very, I would think, determined to have a divide between. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's rough to watch, for sure. I think the moment would have been diminished if we had gotten a closer shot. You know what I mean? Yes. If we had gotten a closer shot and been able to see more injuries, it would have made the moment a bit more about the gore. Yeah. And that is absolutely not what this moment was about. It was not about the injuries themselves. It was about the fact of her, of Sprague's, of Sprague's death, which we learn in the next minute or two, of Sprague's death and her impending death. Yeah. At this moment, it doesn't necessarily matter what her injuries are. It doesn't matter if there's blood everywhere. It's personal. It doesn't need to be sensational like that. No. For sure. For sure. So, as we're watching this minute, like I said, we have about 30 seconds of this minute is devoted to Max reaching Jesse. And as he cries out in pain, we kind of do a a fade to these dark clouds in the sky. Very dark. Very dark. I mean, it, it's a fitting transition. Yes. 
from because as all of this is happening out on the road, it's like blue skies, white clouds. And then we transition because things are getting a lot darker. So we get the appropriately darkened clouds. And I feel like this is a good point to bring up something that I found. Uh, MadMaxMovies.com has a cutscene section. I've, I've pulled stuff from them before. There's more things coming on down the road. But what sparked my interest is that there is a rumored deleted scene that is said to be contained in early prints and whatnot. And it's a depiction of Toe Cutter's gang continuing on from here to hit up MFP headquarters. And they go in, they wreck the place. It's reported that they injure or kill officers and then they leave. Okay. And... I have questions about that. Yeah, while it's not been able to be found within uh, U.S. prints or anything like that, and it hasn't really surfaced in any versions of the script that people have been able to find and i have to wonder about the inclusion of that sort of scene because it seems very out of character for toe cutters gang to be going into an organization like the mfp and attacking the system so directly right they're more the type to pick them off one by one exactly like they took they took time and care to get goose while he was alone mm-hmm. and while he was isolated to the point where it was three on one. Yeah. The toe cutter does not storm castles. Right. He picks people off on the road. Right. And I mean, perfect example is that he just gruesomely murdered a defenseless woman and baby. After they isolated them from the other people around them. Yes. So they're... Their actions certainly are not any sort of bravery or ballsiness or chutzpah or anything. They're, it's cowardice. Right. Their methods are cowardly. Mm-hmm. They would rather ambush and overpower a single opponent than try to go up against people like Fifi and right. Roop and Scarce or whoever else is left from March right. Hare. Anyway... And I'm kind of glad that such a thing is not included in any of the edits that we see nowadays. Yes. I think that it is good for the ending. We're within the last 20 minutes or so of the movie. It's good for the storytelling. For right now, we are solely focused on Max. And we have seen, we are in the turning of the corner. Mm-hmm. The The events that are happening right now and in the next couple of minutes couple of minutes we are becoming max is becoming mad max right it's not the time to focus on the gang yeah we need to stay with max yes for sure max has some things to do and some steps in his journey to make and then he will face toe cutter and the gang right on his own terms Mm -hmm. so speaking of sticking with max we go from these dark storm clouds to Kind of a dark road with kind of a setting sun as an ambulance thunders down the road with its sirens blaring. Yeah, I found this really interesting because we go from the sequence, you know, beach, woods, farm, road, where it's been a pretty nice day. Mm -hmm. Blue skies, white clouds. Then this unthinkable heartbreak happens. The dark clouds roll in. And then we switch to this beautiful sunset that seems to conflict with those dark clouds. Along with the ambulance. Mm -hmm. But what makes the sunset beautiful is that it's like half and half. It's like half clear sky and half dark clouds. And and that gives us a beautiful sunset. 
And I remember when I was a kid learning that the most beautiful sunsets happen when there are clouds in the sky. When you have a clear, perfectly clear sky, sunsets aren't really that spectacular. It's the clouds. Mm -hmm. And so I remember being like disappointed that a beautiful sunset was created by obstructions. You couldn't have just a beautiful, clear sky with a beautiful sunset. Yeah. It's created by things getting in the way. And I really, I like the juxtaposition okay. in this scene where it, it can't all be good. Right. It's not all bad, but it can't all be good. Okay. And I'm sure I'm reading way more into it. I saw these shots of the ambulance passing more in the terms of the very dark lower half with the somewhat more lighted top half where, yeah, something horrible and grim has happened, but maybe there is a light of hope. Yes. The fact that they are in an ambulance, the fact that they are speeding off to the hospital is our first indication that maybe one of them survived because they wouldn't be driving so fast with the sirens blaring if they had both been killed right out. Yes. So I like this idea that there's still a tiny bit of hope. Yes. It's really cloudy. The ground is really dark, but you do get that light on the horizon to just a little bit of reassurance. Yes. That something good could still happen. So we go from the ambulance speeding down the road and we fade into the hospital where Jesse is laid out on a hospital bed, connected up to all these machines, surrounded by a couple doctors and a nurse. And she's, from what it looks like, missing an arm. Yeah. That was something I never noticed before. The one thing that really made it stand out to me was when we were listening to the crew commentary and they flat out said, oh yeah, there, she's supposed to look like she's missing an arm. Yeah. Which is pretty gruesome. Yeah, it makes me think of something coming up in some of the final minutes where Max's arm gets run over. Mm. And it is the same arm. It is the same arm. It's the right arm that gets run over and it's the right arm that's missing missing. from Jesse here. but. Her left arm isn't that much better anyway. No, none of her. Completely bandaged. None of her is that much better, which we learn from the doctors who, as they put it, have a grocery list of issues. Yeah. So we've got two doctors here, like like we said, one wearing a white coat, one wearing blue scrubs. The one in the white coat is the junior doctor. The one in the blue scrubs is the senior doctor. Oh, I kind of thought it would be the other way around. Nope. They'd make the junior doctor get down and dirty. Because the white coat doctor doesn't really look like he's actually done anything. No. Like, he's the one who came in once they got her stabilized at whatever level they were able to. He then came in to, like, examine her. Yeah. So these two, the way they're talking, it's kind of hard to hear when you watch the movie because the soundtrack is so (laughs) loud. It is. It is kind of hard to hear. And maybe we're hearing it from Max's perspective, which in in Monday's Minute... We will learn that he is only only a little bit behind the camera. He's yeah. not that much further away than we are. Yeah. Sitting around the, the corner of the door listening to everything they're saying. Yeah. And so because it's hard for them to hear, I'll kind of run down what they say. So the, the senior doctor in the scrubs asks the junior doctor in the lab coat, what do you reckon? Junior doctor says, I'm a doctor, not a fortune teller. Wait, I thought that was opposite. Nope. Uh, Scrubs guy was the one that said, I'm a doctor, not a fortune teller. Nope. Guy in the lab coat says, I'm a doctor, not a fortune teller. Okay. I didn't see it. 
But the rhythm of the talking mm-hmm. did match that. But I didn't see it. Yeah. So, like I said, senior doctor. What do you reckon, junior okay. doctor? I'm a doctor, not a fortune teller, which kind of gave me a bit of a bones feel. I did not appreciate that line. Yeah. Like, your job is to tell me the prognosis of the patient. Tell me the prognosis of the patient. Yeah. Very sassy there. Like, yes, your job is a fortune teller. That's part of being a doctor. Tell me the future. What's going to happen to this patient? Yeah. So the senior doctor says, this your subdural? Uh, junior doctor says, yeah, that's her. Lots of problems. And then the junior doctor goes on to list multiple traumas, spleen, liver, lung, flail chest, left neck of femur, renal shutdown. And senior doctor says, reads like a grocery list. So I decided that I would kind of like to figure out what all that meant because they... It felt like they were using jargon. They weren't speaking out very loud. And so I jumped on WebMD, which is not necessarily a copy of Grey's Anatomy or anything like that. (laughs) But it's quick and it's easy. And it'll most likely diagnose you with cancer. Anyway. Uh, That's something that wasn't on her grocery list. Exactly. So let's start up at the top. Senior doctor asks, this your subdural. From what I could figure out searching the phrase subdural, it most likely is referring to a subdural hematoma. So... You've got some layers inside your skull. You've got the surface of the brain. You've got kind of a a space there. And then you've got like a covering for the brain. The covering is called the dura. And when you have a subdural hematoma, blood starts to collect between the surface of your brain and that outer covering. And so it's internal bleeding that is putting pressure on the brain. Okay. So that in and of itself is bad. Yes. Like there's a lot of her injuries that are directly related to the idea of a blunt force trauma. Yes. Like getting run over. So we go on down the list. So she has multiple traumas. Traumas are physical injuries as defined on the the web there. So if her spleen is damaged. So a lot of people say that the spleen is, you know, one of those evolutionary things that we don't really need anymore. What it does is it acts as a filter for the blood as part of the immune system. Old red blood cells are recycled in the spleen and the platelets and white blood cells are kind of stored there. So if your spleen ruptures, it causes just a ton of internal bleeding. Mm -hmm. And that alone can be life-threatening. And the interesting thing about the spleen is that when it experiences that blunt force trauma, it could rupture right then and there. Yeah. It could also wait a while days or weeks after the injury and then it can rupture it can be weakened and then rupture later exactly Uh, another thing that the spleen does is it helps fight bacteria um the bacteria that can cause pneumonia and meningitis so if you don't have that in your system and you're in a hospital trying to get better Mm -hmm. not having your spleen functioning could lead to further infection yes and death that way yes so (laughs) we've got blood pooling in the brain we've got the loss of her spleen which is going to try and you know clean out the blood and if it ruptures then massive internal bleeding Uh, she has damage to her liver now it's fairly common knowledge that your liver is what filters the blood coming from the digestive tract so people that drink a lot will have liver failure because the alcohol taxes the liver and then it can shut down when your liver fails it uh can actually cause you to drop into a coma. Usually liver failure is kind of like a slow process. Mm -hmm. It takes time for it to develop. But with something like this, if it's beaten in such a violent way, it can just shut down. So aside from her reaching the hospital, if her liver fails, she could drop out of consciousness completely. 
Right. So if the hematoma didn't do it, mm-hmm. the liver failure probably would. Right. And another thing the liver does is that it metabolizes and detoxifies. So if they're giving her drugs to help her get better and her liver isn't working, she's not processing those chemicals. Right. To get into the system so that they can work. Right. It's incredibly important that she have a working liver. Right. If any hope of recovery, you need your body process to actually do what they're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have your liver. Exactly. Yeah. So the junior doctor goes on to mention her lungs, which I would think that she probably has either like a collapsed or punctured lung. I can't imagine not having... A punctured lung, at least. Right. Because ribs will fracture and can just pierce into a lung. Yep. And basically, when your lung collapses, it it can't reinflate, so mm-hmm. you can't breathe in using that lung. Uh, and one of the side effects of a hole being in your lung is sometimes that air can escape the lung and go into the torso. Uh-huh. And it can put pressure on the other lung that's still working it can put pressure on the heart it can alter your blood pressure like suddenly your blood pressure can just drop right and so if your heart isn't pushing all that blood to the rest of your body like your brain exactly like that can be really really bad going off of the idea of a fractured rib is also the idea of her having a flail chest which i didn't really know about I've never heard that term. So a flail chest is when a segment of the rib cage breaks due to trauma and becomes detached from the rest of the chest wall. Because your rib cage kind of goes from your sternum around the side, connects into the spine, and it protects all of those internal organs. Mm -hmm. And a flail chest is when a section of rib cage... Completely breaks free. Exactly. So now you've got... And that just sounds... And of course, incredibly dangerous. Now you have all those, all those broken pieces of bone Mm -hmm. that could puncture any number of organs, Mm -hmm. most likely your lungs a couple of times. Exactly. And then after he mentions the flail chest, he mentions the left neck of femur. And I never took an anatomy class in college because they didn't require me to. Right. And I was lazy. Basically, it's your hip. Yeah. So you've got on your femur, you've got a ball. And you've got a section that kind of goes out on an angle. And then you've got the main shaft of the femur, which forms your upper leg. That diagonal shaft, that's the neck. Yes. So when you break that neck, it's like a really bad hip break, just like you said. That is an injury that I see a lot. Mm -hmm. I work in the medical field uh, with uh, durable medical equipment. And we see a lot of neck of femur broken hips. Mm -hmm. And considering how she was run over, it's... Totally understandable how her hip would be broken. And I kind of suppose that aside from all, from having her femur broken, she probably has pelvic damage too, based yeah. on where the tires would have gone. And then last on this list is renal shutdown. So that's a condition in which the kidneys lose the ability to remove waste and balance fluids. And without your kidneys, your body cannot filter impurities in blood. So the main thrust of her injuries are... A lot of internal bleeding, a lot of systems shutting down. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know that she's lost at least one limb. She's probably slipping into a coma. This is not a good situation. <laughs> Certainly not. So when the senior doctor asks if she is salvageable and the junior doctor is like, oh, yeah, sure. Do they I, mean... I, I gotta wonder if he really believes that. I didn't even get the sense that he did believe it. I thought he was saying that only for the benefit of Max, Mm. which I think is a real jerky thing to do, which 
we'll talk about more next minute. Yeah. The senior doctor asking if Jesse is salvageable technically rolls from today's minute into Monday's minute. Yes. Do you think that he would, when he says salvageable, do you think he meant um, as a donor? Like, is there anything salvageable? I say, that sounds a lot better. As a better. donor. That sounds a lot better as a serious question that one doctor would ask another. Right. Than is she savable? Right. Because, because obviously she's not. I mean, I know, I don't know a lot about the medical field. I know enough to know that she is a dead woman. Yeah. And if she does survive, she'll probably have to live off of a life support machine. Yes. Which, so I so yeah. I think that I think when they say salvageable, they're asking if, if there's any organs left. Yeah. Which is Which is <sighs> kinda no. That is I mean, we covered all we covered all the major ones. I mean yeah. they didn't say anything about her heart. I say her heart could probably be donated but to if someone, but she's with the uh with the with her rib cage broken free partially, the chances of it puncturing her heart, depending on the locations involved. Yeah. Well, hopefully with her being in the hospital, she wouldn't be in a situation where that would happen. Right. But... Like jostling around and moving around. Yeah, it's if you but didn't know I'm that, I'm trying to think of like what's left. Yeah, if you didn't know that George Miller Bladder. was a doctor at this point, <laughs> right? Now it's you pretty know. clear that he used that he used his knowledge of the human body and what would happen to it if it were run over by a motorcycle at high speed. Yeah. yeah. So while we were very reassuring yesterday about don't worry, Jesse doesn't die in this minute. Here we mm, pretty yes, much she... hear that she's on very borrowed time. Yes. And we never Do are we... told specifically that she dies. Yes, which we kind of leave her in this seems condition. Seems to be a running theme, right? People get left movie. in the hospital and then they're never seen or heard from again, right? Which we don't often get perfect confirmation that somebody died. If we do, it's like down the road a little. Yeah, that's kind of a rough indictment of the Australian hospital system. Like in this movie, people go into the hospital but they don't come out. <laughs> I was like, actually that's, wondering. That's really rough. I was actually wondering the the way that hospitals are portrayed in this movie. I don't think is very flattering. Mm. But I'm wondering if it's if it's a portrayal of how hospitals in general, not just Australian, but around the world, how hospitals were in the late seventies. Yeah. Or is it a portrayal of how hospitals were in the late seventies in Australia? Or is it just a portrayal of how we simplify hospitals for movies and media in general? I'm really hoping it's that last one. I and... think so. Because look at, I mean, look at a show like ER, for example. Right. Which is the type of scenes that in the hospital have been traumatic scenes in the hospital look absolutely nothing like that. Mm -hmm. In a show like ER, you actually see a lot of machines around. It's well lit. There is blood everywhere. There are people everywhere. There's tools everywhere. And it feels very realistic. This doesn't feel realistic right. at all. I think not so much that this is an indictment of the Australian hospital system. I think this is highlighting how in a situation where society is in decline, hospitals are receiving are... less supplies, yes. less support. So, it's very dark in these hospitals, so they probably have to deal with less power yeah, to run their they're equipment. They're probably rationing their electricity, and they're just doing the best they can. Right. And yes, the two examples we see aren't great. Nobody survives a trip to the hospital. Yeah. In this movie, 
doesn't mean nobody does. Yeah, they make it seem like the hospital is just a cleaner place to die. Yes. Than out on the road. But they're still making every effort to get people to the hospital. I mean, we see lots of ambulances. Oh, absolutely. In this movie, throughout. So, yeah, I, I think the reputation of the Australian hospital system is not threatened by this movie. No. If anything, the vigilance of the doctors is kind of praiseworthy considering that the world is slowly being taken over by roving bands of marauders. Right. They still did everything they could for her. Exactly. And they still did everything they could for Goose. Mm -hmm. I mean, genuinely, in both those situations, the wounds they came in with were extremely life-threatening. Exactly. And they did what they could, and they set them up. Because both Goose and Jesse, by the time we see them, they're taken care of Mm. they're cleaned up they're in bed they're hooked up to what they can be hooked up to you know there was a blue burn light on goose helping him out jesse has had her severely damaged arm removed and she's all bandaged up they they've already done everything they could for them and treated them well and set them up nicely right right to die yeah But even, I mean, you take both of them and put them in the best ERs in the world today, you still couldn't save them. Yeah, yeah. It's really rough. That really brings us to the end of this minute. Yes. We're going to pick up with the doctors again tomorrow. The nurse is going to come in tomorrow, ask what they should tell Max, who's waiting outside. And the doctor's going to be a jerk. Yep. And we're going to transition. We're going to be able to see that turn where Max goes full on mad. Yeah, I'm glad that we we get through the hospital scene fairly quickly. Yeah. I'm I'm glad. It's not too I want to move along in the story. So I'm glad we, it's just like half of this minute and less than half of the next minute. And we're back to the emotional journey. Right. So be sure to come back on Monday. We're going to pick up with minute 76. In the meantime, oh, I just forgot. Yes. We always talk about stuff on Friday. Yes. And this episode is going long, but we want to mention real quick. (laughs) Yeah, we mentioned it briefly the other day. We have started watching Prisoner. Now, the American title is Prisoner Cell Block H. And we are loving it. So every episode of Prisoner... Is on YouTube. Someone has uploaded like all uh, 580, six, 600 episodes. I think like almost that. 700 episodes. So we are only like nine episodes in yeah. because they're 45 minute long episodes. Yes. But holy cow, are we hooked. I know there's a lot of people out there like, oh, Orange, in the, Orange is the New Black on Netflix. It's so good. And it's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Prisoner okay. is good. <laughs> I actually, this kind of makes me want to watch Orange is the New Black because what I know from, what little, very little I know about Orange is the New Black, I wonder if Prisoner is like its predecessor. If they are conceptually and thematically related. More than just the obvious female prisoners. Hmm. It makes me wonder if if they're connected. Yeah, maybe. We have a Netflix account. We can check it out. Yeah, we can check it out. we kind of been meaning to watch Orange is the New Black. Yeah. Mostly because everybody raves about it so much. Mm. Uh, But that won't be until after we finish Prisoner, and that's going to be a long time. Oh, yeah. Even watching, like, two episodes a day, it's taking us a while to get through it. Yes. But even, like, the first two episodes are really engaging. Yes. So, like, you pick up the show, and you've got two inmates. you got Karen and Lynette. 
Lynette is not nearly as interesting to us as Karen is, um, because Lynette's kind of whiny, but Karen is intense. And then you've got all the people inside the prison. Uh, first of all, Sheila Florence is one of the inmates. She's Lizzie. She is excellent. She is amazing. Um, <laughs> we've already seen just some beautiful acting from her oh, yeah. and some beautiful bad acting, like on purpose bad acting that is just hilarious. Yeah. I think if I had to pick favorites, people that stand out to me as favorites, B. Smith who is one of, like, the heavy hitters in the jail, is definitely a favorite of mine. She's great because in the first few episodes, she has this, like, little stint out of the jail, which is just spectacular. Yes. She's got a quick arc. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mom is another great character. She's an older woman in the jail. She has another little stint outside of the prison early on. I think her story is much more interesting when she's interacting with the other inmates, but that's just me. Mm-hmm. Frankie Doyle. Initially, I, I did oh, not like her at all. I don't. But she's want, really growing on me. I don't want to like her, and like the writers don't want us to like her. That's right. how she's written. But then there are these moments when she's not being mean and nasty. Yeah, where you can see real—I don't know if kindness is the word—but you can see like humanity. Yeah, genuine humanity in her face yeah. and in her eyes. The and more it's really wonderful. The more time we spend with Frankie, the more human she appears. Yes, and the more sympathetic she is. Absolutely. And oh. She really gets the short end of the stick as far as the writing is concerned because she, in this prison full of women, is like the token hard-ass lesbian. Yes. You know? And, yeah, that that archetype isn't written very well. No, no. You know, this was... When did it start? Uh, early 80s? Prisoner started in 1979. Oh, okay. Right after this. Right after Mad Max, I mean. So I'm I'm just not sure that in 1979, 1980, writers had a lot of practice writing a good lesbian character that you were supposed to dislike. Yeah. She's she's written like a very mean character and like that and that meanness is part of her being a lesbian. Yeah. And those two things don't go together. You can be a lesbian and you can be mean. That's fine. But the way she's written is that she's mean because she's a lesbian. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully they kind of sort themselves out on her a little bit. I think she's got a lot of potential. Yeah. But I mean, even like even trying to nail down a favorite, it's hard because you've got so many different personalities that yes. work together in this kind of soup. Because you've got other inmates like uh, like Doreen and oh, her, Doreen. her stuffed animal connection. But even then, you've got the guards the like guards. Vera and Meg and the governor and it's... Yep, and we get to see a little bit of the outside world. And I think I've learned the lesson that when you see the outside world, it will connect back in to Mm -hmm. the prisoners. Either some something a piece of information is going to be learned that affects a prisoner inside, or someone you meet on the outside is about to become a prisoner on the inside. Like everything so far they've done a phenomenal job of Everything connects back to the prisoners on the inside because that's what the show is about. Yeah. So, like I said, it's free on YouTube. Just search Prisoner Cell Block H on YouTube. You will find the entire series. Highly recommend checking it out. Yep. Started episode one. That's my recommendation. We decided it would be cool initially to try and pick out a couple episodes here and there based on, like, 
character actors from the movie Mad Max appearing in the show. Yeah. And when you jump in 500 episodes in, it's like, you're too far in. (laughs) Yeah, but then we got hooked. We watched like two or three episodes in a row in the 500 somewhere. We got hooked. And we're like, no, 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 no. We can't do this. Let's start back at number one. (laughs) And yeah, so we, so then we got hooked at number one. Exactly. So... How yeah, start number one. Yeah, so it's in t- it's totally binge worthy. Yes, like and it will take you. You know what? It's the perfect summer binge because mm-hmm. it will take you all summer to get through it. Yeah. So when it's like really hot out and you just want to like sit in front of an air conditioner, you can pull up your phone, open your laptop, connect to your TV somehow, watch these episodes, and just like try not to die from the heat. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Another thing you can do as you're trying to avoid dying from the heat is check out our website, which is madmaxminute.com. Or you could follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook, and join our listeners page, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. Well, thank you for joining us for Mad Max Minute number 75. We'll see you on Monday. Motorbikes and leather men, take me to the end of the dream. Hold on tight, so it's short, Bill.